Garrett Graff with us. George Norrie back with you. Garrett, where do people get your book, UFOs, The Inside Story? You can find it wherever you get your books. It is uh, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local independent bookstore. There's an audio version, um, an ebook version. It is, uh, as they say, wherever books are sold, however you like to read it, uh, audio, ebook, or, or hardcover, it's available. Truly a collector's item and very, very comprehensive. And as you said, it took you two years to put together. How'd you even start it? Well, you know, I, I spent a lot of time going back and reading and researching and digging into the archive. Um, you know, part of what, um, you know, what we've actually seen over the years is an incredible amount of declassified information from the government that has sort of trickled out here and there, trying to fill in some of these holes. And then, of course, um, you know, there have been a lot of books written by, about the subject over the years. And um, I also spent a lot of time, you know, reading dissertations um, and, and science papers and trying to understand that world of astronomy as well, because, you know, so much of the story of whether uh, aliens are visiting here is wrapped up in the story of whether aliens exist at all. What do you think of the 1947 Roswell case? So Roswell, to me, um, I don't actually find it one of the more compelling stories. Um, to, to me, there are sort of others that stand out um, you know, we talked about the Lonnie Zamora case, um, you know, ones that sort of seem like they have better contemporary documentary evidence. Um, but one of the things that I actually really um, came away convinced by um, that there is not a government cover-up of alien craft and alien bodies at Roswell has to do with the Fermi paradox, um, you know, what is probably the most famous uh, conversation that has ever taken place about aliens. Um, you know, this was Edward Teller and Enrico Fermi uh, speaking um, in the summer of 1950 at, uh, at Los Alamos National Lab. Um, you know, anyone this summer who saw the movie Oppenheimer, um, you know, knows, uh, knows those figures. Fermi and, and Teller were some of the key Manhattan Project scientists, oh, yeah. engineers, and physicists who helped uh, put together the atomic bomb at Los Alamos in, the cold, uh, in, in World War II and were in 1950, you know, helping to begin the process of actually building a thermonuclear device, a hydrogen bomb. And they, we know that this conversation took place in the summer of 1950 because they were talking about a specific cartoon about aliens that ran in the New Yorker that summer. And they have this conversation over lunch where Fermi says, um, basically, where are they? Um, you know, if there are aliens, if there are a lot of aliens, why don't we see them? Why aren't they anywhere around us? Um, and to me, that, that moment actually really stands out in the context of Roswell, because I think that there is a popular misunderstanding in the mythology around Roswell that had 
the craft or bodies been retrieved there, they would have been taken to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to, you know, what was then the Air Technical Intelligence right. Center at Wright-Patterson, um, which is where Project Blue Book, Project Sign, Project Grudge were all based. I think, actually, that if, a, if there was a spacecraft that crashed and was retrieved in 1947, um, it wouldn't have gone to Wright-Patterson. It would have gone to Los Alamos. Los Alamos was three hours up the road from Roswell. It was a facility specifically designed by the U.S. government for secrecy and to work on, you know, the most sensitive, biggest questions of physics and engineering. And there were, um, you know, all of the scientists like Fermi and, and, and Teller already in position at Los Alamos to have you know, to study a a crashed and retrieved uh, spacecraft or, or alien bodies. And so, uh, to me, part of the Roswell story is that if there were 10 American figures, 10 people sort of in and around government who would have been in on the secret of a retrieved crash from Roswell in 1947, it would have been Fermi and Teller. And so if they are standing around three years later saying uh, we haven't seen aliens, that actually, to me, carries a lot of weight historically about how the U.S. government would have operated in that moment. Good point. Let's take some calls for you. Joe, truck driving in Missouri. Welcome to the show. Hey, Joseph, go ahead. Evening, gentlemen. Um I am certainly open to the possibility and perhaps even probability of uh, intelligent alien life existing in the vastness of the universe. My concern with this latest tranche of information of the last, you know, since that New York Times article, 2017, 2019, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. is that in this global age of connectivity, the internet, smartphone, video, so much of it is coming from government sources. And, As we know, from JFK to the Pentagon Papers, Operation Mockingbird, MKUltra, weapons of mass destruction, the government is not always most truthful of entities. And uh, John Brennan, who you mentioned in particular, is a very political creature. I mean, when when Trump came along and uh, had the audacity to just rhetorically challenge the hostile oligarchies agenda of effectively dissolving nations by allowing free flow of capital and people across borders, Brennan really shamelessly, outright, repeatedly lied, making Trump out to be some sort of Russian Manchurian candidate. Hmm. So my question is, and I'm sure you get into this in your book a little bit, um, should we trust this newer information? Are, are the older stories that they're trying to cover up more uh, it more trustworthy, but, or, or what do you think about that, the, the trustworthiness of government sources? Yeah, it, it's a really good question. And part of, I think, the challenge that we have with so many of these UFO encounters is that the – I think you're sort of exactly right, you know, to sort of point to the, to the challenge of, you know, the modern age of smartphones and documentary evidence that we just don't actually have the data uh, and history and, uh, you know, sort of the scientific comprehensive approach to a lot of these sightings in the past that 
we would need in order to be able to actually study what this thing actually is. Um, and to me, um, you know, uh, uh, and I actually have a, a piece running in Politico uh, later today um, uh, or, or later this week about sort of how the government could take studying UFOs and, and UAPs more seriously, um, because I think it should. Um, I, and I think that there's a phenomenon out there that is real, um, and it's probably not only one thing. Um, you know, that this is, uh, you know, a mix of some things that are actual technologies um, and and a mix of things that are phenomenon, you know, that are um, uh, that are atmospheric, meteorological and astronomical phenomenon in science that we don't yet understand. And then I also think it's quite possible that some chunk of this is very, very weird stuff. I mean, things that are far weirder than we could possibly imagine now with our knowledge and understanding of physics and science. Um, you know, it, and that doesn't necessarily mean aliens. You know, this could be uh, interdimensional travel. This could be time travel. This could be wormholes. This could be parallel dimensions. Um, and that there's sort of a lot of stuff there that would be interesting and world-changing, mm -hmm. you know, fundamentally rewriting our understanding of our place in the cosmic consciousness, um, and it still not be flying saucers from Alpha Centauri happening to visit Earth on a random Tuesday. Um, and to me, that's part of what is actually so exciting about this subject is sort of the hope and optimism and sense of wonder that I think you come away from looking at this world with about how much more we have to learn about the world around us. And Garrett, you devote a chapter to the JFK assassination in the book. Uh, yeah, yes, and a lot of, um, you know, the the caller um, there, you know, talked about, you know, Watergate and Pentagon Papers and, and Vietnam. Um, and as you mentioned at the top of the show, my last book was actually on Watergate. Um, and in some ways, this subject ends up being a... Uh, a stranger but more closely related sequel to a book on Watergate than I ever imagined that it would be in the uh, when, when I started it, because what the second half of the book really ends up being is a story about how the collapse of truth and trust in government and institutions in the last 40 years, post-Watergate, post-Pentagon Papers, post-Vietnam, Church Committee, Pike Committee, um, how we have sort of come to doubt, rightly in many cases, uh, what our government tells us. Let's go to Benjamin in Houston, Texas. Hey, Ben, go ahead. Hey, George, how you doing? I'm, okay. Good morning. <laughs> good morning to you, too. I'm sorry. It's force of habit. Hey, um, long-time caller, first-time listener. I'm just kidding. I just wanted to say that. That's good. But, <laughs> I give you a C on your comedy, but I still care about you. Hey, um, 
I had an idea. Um, it's not something I believe in or disbelieve in. It's just an idea. And I wanted to ask you and your guest about this. Um, so I believe in God, and I believe that Noah's flood actually happened mm-hmm. and all that. And that when his sons got off the ark, they all went their separate ways and created all the races in the world that we see today due to their environment and wherever they went to. I'm not an evolutionist. I'm not a creationist, but I do believe in creation. And what if some of these people went down and they went underground and due to dim lighting, maybe their eyes got bigger and they would have had pale skin. And if they didn't have the politics that, you know, our governments in the world today do where they keep all technology like secret and they were just like, Hey, if you've got an idea, let's throw it in there. Let's, let's advance. It would only have been like four or 500 years after the flood that they would have been really technologically advanced and then uh, throw another 3,500 years on top of that. And then you got the grace. That was my idea. Well, let me tell you, that's not as far fetched as you think because the Hopi Indians, uh, Garrett, believe what they call the ant people, that people lived underground and, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe civilizations did that. What do you think? Yeah, and, you know, the question of, uh, you know, sort of how life and when life began, when human civilization began on Earth, um, you know, is a very hotly debated part of this history and science. Um, you know, Francis Crick, the, you know, no less a scientific authority uh, than the man who helped discover DNA's double helix. I mean, one of the most accomplished scientists of the 20th century. That's right. Um, he he spends the 70s and 80s arguing uh, that life on Earth began as what he called directed panspermia, that it was sort of placed here by alien civilizations um, and, and sort of planted like seeds on Earth. And that, um, you know, how much he ever believed his own theory was sort of always a, you know, open question. But, uh, you know, he was uh, closely associated enough with the debate that it ended up in his obituary in the New York Times. And that, to me, one of the questions, uh, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about on the show already, this, uh, you know, this mix of science and spirituality that this subject naturally ends up involving it is, um, you know, the question of sort of, is there a God and are we alone are not necessarily unrelated questions. Um, that a advanced civilization from elsewhere in the universe um, could be so advanced um, you know, you're talking civilizations of millions, billions uh, of years uh, that it would appear to us on Earth as sort of the equivalent of a god um, in, in terms of the way that it techno- its technology and, and, and worldview operated. Um, and, you know, I think that there are a lot of... Um, places where these stories end up colliding 
in ways that um, are, are pretty important. I mean, one of the things that really stood out for me in my research is how much of the question of are we alone ends up being a relatively recent and relatively Western and Judeo-Christian-centric question because so many other faith traditions throughout the world, particularly Eastern ones, have always believed in the multitude of, uh, 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 of worlds and, and people and sure. civilizations elsewhere. Um, and, and in fact, the sort of modern push by the U.S. government uh, around this subject, um, you know, got off the ground, as we now know, with Harry Reid, then U.S. Senator from Nevada, and that he he sort of was interested in this subject and believed in, in its study in part because as a Mormon, he his faith very explicitly allowed for and embraced the possibility of civilizations elsewhere. And so for him, um, you know, it was his faith tradition that led him to think that UFOs and UAPs were worthy of serious study because there might be civilizations and intelligent civilizations out there. Garrett, do you ever think we're going to get the answers we're looking for? Yes, I think this is a solvable question. Um, I, I think that this is a solvable problem. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that I really come away from this subject with is uh, I think we need to be humble about how little we understand about the world around us. You know, we talked about the advances of physics that, uh, you know, might lead to understanding of things like parallel dimensions or wormholes or time travel. Um, you know, Avi Loeb, the Harvard astronomy chair, he makes the point that in January, when the world's oldest living person died, she was a French nun aged 118 years old, that the entire understanding of relativity and quantum physics unfolded in her lifetime. Right there. We're going to come back and take more calls in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back, George Norrie with Garrett Graff. Uh, Garrett, uh, I worked with a news director in Detroit back in the 70s. His name was Richard Graff. Any relation by any chance? Uh, at least not a close relation, no. Great guy, though. You know, he had a great news director. Then I ended up working with the Pulitzers in the 70s, and I noticed you were a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize in history. Yes, the, by, by History of Watergate, which we've talked a little bit about tonight, uh, was the finalist for uh, the Pulitzer Prize in history earlier this year. Boy, did Nixon screw up on that one, didn't he? Yes, he did. And, uh, and you know, I think one of the things I learned in that uh, in that research project was, you know, the saying that we always have from Watergate that it's the cover-up, not the crime. Actually, Nixon's crimes were pretty bad along the way. This was, uh, we sort of misunderstand just how, just how bad and just how criminal and just how corrupt the Nixon White House actually was. And he would have won re-election by a landslide, I bet. Yes. He, he, he had uh, uh, the... He never embarked on the, the Watergate burglary. Um, you know, he would have retired as a, a very successful two-term president in January 1977. Yep. 
He would have had his two terms of v- as VP with Eisenhower and then his two as president and uh, would have lived a life of luxury. Yep. Oh, well, let's go to the phones. East of the Rockies, Dr. Brown is with us in Mansfield, Ohio. Hey, doctor, go uh, hello, ahead. Hello, George and Garrett. How are you guys tonight? Hopefully you're well and not COVID-infected or any of that stuff. We are well, sir. Thank you. I was just going to tell you something. My father... This is going to be a very interesting story for you, George, because I know you follow this, and your guests probably will too. My my father uh, was at Wright Pat Air Force Base in 1950, and he told me when I was 18 years old that he actually saw the aliens, which he said were gray shaved monkeys, come off a of B-29. Now that's impossible because that happened in 47. So that must mean there's an uh, actual videotape somewhere. And my, my position on all this stuff about the aliens and the spacecraft are, I, I kind of go with uh, Carl Sagan on this. I want you to show me the spacecraft, and I want you to show me the bodies. I want to see the aliens, and I want to see the spacecraft. Now, if I can't see either one of those, it makes it pretty hard for me to make a definitive collection in my brain if these guys are real. Or if we're just all crazy, <laughs> what do you think of that, George? Oh well, I think you're spot on. We uh, we need some more harder evidence other than you know flybys and things like that. What do you think, Garrett? Yeah, it, it, you, know, you mentioned Carl Sagan there, um, and you know his famous line about you know extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, you know, one of the things that is interesting and I think misunderstood about Sagan is. You know, he was such a proponent of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And his argument was not that aliens don't visit Earth. It's that they just don't visit here very often. That uh, sort of statistically, according to him, he he believed that probably aliens visit Earth, Earth every couple hundred thousand years. And he used that as his argument against the regular sightings of UFOs here as being uh, of extraterrestrial origin, because in his mind, sort of the chances that last Tuesday or next Thursday is the one day every 200,000 years that aliens stop by Earth uh, just were vanishingly astronomically small. And so to him, uh, he... His argument, which I think is actually pretty compelling, is if aliens are out there, if there are intelligent life out there, they probably don't know that we are here um, and that they are, uh, you know, we're a pretty young civilization in a pretty ordinary planet in a pretty ordinary solar system. And that if and when aliens stop by, according to Carl Sagan, they treat Earth probably more like a rest area on the Jersey Turnpike, where you're stopping huh. on the way from one interesting place to another. For a little refueling, and, right? Exactly, sort of a refueling stop. Um, and I think, you know, again, these are not necessarily statements saying that UFOs are not real, that there's not a real phenomenon, because I think one of the things that seems quite likely to me is that the UFO UAP phenomenon can have 
terrestrial-based answers that are still incredibly weird and world-changing. You know, we talked about parallel dimensions or time travel or, or things like that um, that could explain what these things are that we are experiencing, even if they are not visits from extraterrestrials. Good point. Here's Ted, truck driving in Mississippi. Welcome to the program, Ted. Go ahead. I am not a crook. You know, <laughs> good, um, good I've line. Never been to Argentina, but I believe it's there. So, for your last caller, anyhow, good morning, George and Garrett. Hi, Ted. Yeah, I've got an in- interesting good morning. tale. Uh, I read a book by the Treasure Hunter by Robin Moore, and my partner and I headed down to the Mosquito Coast to uh, mine gold. And uh, on the way, before going down, I pitched Homestake Mining to do exploration work for them. And we set, sent them some good ore samples, so they sent their senior geologist down there the second year. Now, this guy goes all around the world um, checking out potential gold strikes, so he leads an intriguing life. So I said, well, what do you do for entertainment? He asked me if I knew what spelunking was, and I was like, sure thing, caving. And he said he was only interested in one cave um, near Mount Shasta, where he and another scientist had set up equipment to measure uh, air volume that was coming out as the landmass heated up. And they predicted that there was uh, about two astrodomes of uh, airspace in there, uh, leading to uh, further his belief in Lemurians. But that's another story. So my question is, uh, what's your take on uh, Bob Lazar and his... uh, his tale of uh, being hired as a reverse engineer. Bob Lazar, of course, appeared on Coast to Coast with George Knapp and uh, Bob and Art Bell a long time ago. I think he's got some credibility, Garrett. Do you, have you uh, followed his uh, work? Yes, I've certainly followed it. Uh, you know, again, we we come back to uh, what we've been talking about. That I I I think part of the challenge with a lot of these, uh, you know, whether you call them whistleblowers um, or or witnesses that come forward, is that we are lacking the documentary evidence that would back up their stories, the independent documentary evidence. Um, I, I think more broadly, part of the challenge is also that, People like Lazar, um, people like this summer's uh, uh, whistleblower, um, Dave Grush, can be telling the truth as they understand it, um, you know, within the purview of what they see, um, what they are told, what people tell them, the corners of the dark and classified world in which some of these people operate, but that they don't necessarily have the full picture and they don't necessarily have the full understanding of what these programs actually could be and what they are. Um, You know, as as one example from this summer is, uh, you know, David Grush has talked about this UFO crash retrieval program Mm -hmm. that the government has. That's absolutely true. The U.S. government has a UFO crash retrieval program. Um, I trace its history in the book, going all the way back to what was originally called the Foreign Technology Division of the uh, Army Air Corps in World War I. Um, this is a unit that has existed for 
almost 100 years in Air Force intelligence going around the world and picking up weird things that crash that we don't know what they are. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of their work, uh, by any means, is, is extraterrestrial craft. You know, this is how this is the unit in World War II that collected Japanese Zeros and Messerschmitt fighters and Dornier bombers when they crashed in the Cold War um, during the Korean War. You know, this is how we got our hands on Soviet MiGs. Um, and I would bet a lot of their work today is actually focused on getting Chinese drones, Russian drones, Iranian drones when they go down around the world. Um, and so, you know, that unit exists. And I also believe that it's highly likely that that unit has recovered technology that we don't understand what it is, um, that there are people on that team, that there are government scientists who have looked at that work, uh, looked at that technology, and are, are unable to piece together what it is. Um, where I think I have some challenge uh, based on the evidence that we have thus far is does that necessarily lead to the conclusion that that is extraterrestrial intelligence, uh, extraterrestrial craft, or is that craft and technology uh, of a different origin uh, that, again, our government just doesn't understand? Good point. Let's go to Bill in Los Angeles. Hey, Bill, go ahead. Uh, hey, George. Hey, uh, Garrett, uh, I think you might be my doppelganger. I'm a history teacher and former journalist, uh, Columbia J School 86, and I've been in that Pulitzer World Room that, you know, where they award the prize. I didn't get a prize, but I've, I've been in that room. And uh, I also had an encounter with Donald Segretti, the dirty tricks uh, prankster of the Watergate era that I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, but I just wanted to say uh, I think if somebody wants an objective if, if an objective person wants evidence, they should look at uh, Al Chop, Air Force folks, and Al Chop's account of the 1952 uh, double flyovers of D.C., which included military and civilian uh, eye contact uh, and radar contact uh, with at least three different radar operators, including Harry Barnes of National Airport, recording speeds that were just impossible for any craft at that time. And I think any objective observer of that data would have enough evidence to conclude that something came here from somewhere. What was in it? Who knows? But that's my three cents. That was an incredible yeah, story, that's, that's too, Garrett. Go ahead. Absolutely. And uh, those are what are called the Washington merry-go-round sighting. Um, and, and I talk about them. And, and one of the things that really sort of stands out for me in that story is how interested Harry Truman was in those incidents as they were unfolding. Um, and there is some incredible, uh, you know, I, I come at this topic really as uh, my background actually as a presidential historian in many ways, like that Watergate book. And I was really amazed at how many presidents from Harry Truman on have been interested and focused on this subject um, and how many presidents really are just like us, that one of the first things that they ask when they get to the Oval Office is, do we have aliens? Um, and there are some great stories um, about the responses to people like President Clinton and President Obama um, and what they discovered. But then there's also um, you know, some incredible stories from Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, uh, both of whom had 
their own UFO encounters personally with how those shaped their worldview. Um, and in fact, uh, I, I talk about in the book uh, how Ronald Reagan's approach to the Cold War was actually very much inspired by his interest in extraterrestrial life as an actor, in science fiction, and Hollywood pop culture around aliens, um, and that he actually really talked at some length uh, to Gorbachev about how the U.S. and the Soviet Union would respond if Earth was attacked by an alien civilization, and if they were act together to save the planet under those circumstances, why don't they act now to save the planet from nuclear war? He even made a speech about that. He, he did. Um, and there's a great line where he, he became sort of so associated with talking about this subject that uh, Colin Powell, uh, then his national security advisor, would rant around the West Wing, oh, gosh, here he goes talking about the little green men again. Yeah, absolutely. Garrett, what's your next book? Uh, D-Day. I'm writing an oral history of D-Day that will come out next June. All right. When it's done, come back on the show. We'll be back in a moment on Coast to Coast AM as we talk about your dreams.